Chapter Two of the Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Doughty. The Black Bag, by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Two. And some there be who have adventures thrust upon them. The assumption seems not unwarrantable that Mr. Callender figuratively washed his hands of Mr. Kirkwood. Unquestionably, Mr. Kirkwood considered himself well rid of Mr. Callender. When the latter had gone his way, Kirkwood, mindful of the fact that his boat train would leave St. Pancras at half after eleven, set about his packing and dismissed from his thoughts the incident, created by the fat chevalier d'Industrie, and at six o'clock or thereabouts let himself out of his room, dressed for the evening a light raincoat over one arm, in the other a cane, the drizzle having ceased. A stolid British lift lifted him down to the ground floor of the establishment in something short of five minutes. Pausing in the office long enough to settle his bill and leave instructions to have his luggage conveyed to the boat train, he received with entire equanimity the affable benediction of the clerk, in whose eyes he still figured as that radiant creature, an American millionaire, and passed on to the lobby where he surrendered hat, coat, and stick to the cloak-room attendant, ere entering the dining-room. The hour was a trifle early for a London dinner, the handsome room but moderately filled with patrons. Kirkwood absorbed the fact unconsciously and without displeasure. The earlier, the better. He was determined to consume his last civilised meal, as he chose to consider it, at his serene leisure, to live fully his ebbing moments in the world to which he was born, to drink to its cloying dregs one ultimate draught of luxury. A benignant waiter bowed him into a chair by a corner table in juxtaposition with an open window, through which, swaying imperceptibly the closed hangings, were wafted gentle gusts of the London evening's sweet, damp breath. Kirkwood settled himself with an inaudible sigh of pleasure. He was dining, for the last time in heaven knew how long, in a first-class restaurant. With a deferential flourish the waiter brought him the menu-card. He had served in his time many an American millionaire. He had also served this Mr. Kirkwood, and respected him as one exalted above the run of his kind, in that he comprehended the art of dining. Fifteen minutes later the waiter departed rejoicing, his order complete. To distract a conscience whispering of extravagance, Kirkwood lighted a cigarette. The room was gradually filling with later arrivals. It was the most favoured restaurant in London, and, despite the radiant costumes of the women, its atmosphere remained sedate and restful. A cab clattered down the side street on which the window opened. At a nearby table a woman laughed, quietly happy. Incuriously Kirkwood glanced her way. She was bending forward, smiling, flattering her escort with the adoration of her eyes. They were lovers, alone in the wilderness of a crowded restaurant. They seemed very happy. Kirkwood was conscious of a strange pang of emotion. It took him some time to comprehend that it was envy. He was alone and lonely. For the first time he realised that no woman had ever looked upon him as the woman at the adjoining table looked upon her lover. He had found time to worship but one mistress, his art, 
and he was renouncing her. He was painfully conscious of what he had missed, had lost, or had not yet found, the love of a woman. The sensation was curious, new, unique in his experience. His cigarette burned down to his fingers as he sat pondering. Abstractedly he ground its fire out in an ashtray. The waiter set before him a silver tureen, covered. He sat up and began to consume his soup, scarce doing it justice. His dream troubled him, his dream of the love of a woman. From a little distance his waiter regarded him with an air of disappointment. In the course of an hour and a half he awoke to discover the attendant in the act of pouring very hot and black coffee from a bright silver pot into a demitasse of fragile porcelain. Kirkwood slipped a single lump of sugar into the cup, gave over his cigar-case to be filled, then leaned back, deliberately lighting a long and slender panatella as a preliminary to the last lingering appreciation of the scene of which he was a part. He reviewed it through narrowed eyelids, lazily, yet with some slight surprise, seeming to see it with new vision, with eyes from which the scales of ignorance had dropped. This long and brilliant dining-hall, with its quiet perfection of proportion and appointment, had always gratified his love of the beautiful. To-night it pleased him to an unusual degree. Yet it was the same as ever, its walls tinted a deep rose with their hangings of dull cloth of gold, its lights discriminatingly clustered and discreetly shaded, redoubled in half a hundred mirrors, its subdued shimmer of plate and glass, its soberly festive assemblage of circumspect men and women splendidly gowned, its decorously muted murmur of voices penetrated and interwoven by the strains of a hidden string orchestra, caressed his senses as always, yet with a difference. To-night he saw it a room populous with lovers, lovers insensibly paired, man unto woman attentive, woman of man regardful. He had never understood this before. This much he had missed in life. It seemed hard to realise that one must forgo it all for ever. Presently he found himself acutely self-conscious. The sensation puzzled him, and without appearing to do so he traced it from effect to cause, and found the cause in a woman, a girl, rather, seated at a table the third removed from him, near the farther wall of the room, too considerate and too embarrassed to return her scrutiny openly, look for look, he yet felt sure that, however temporarily, he was become the object of her intent interest. Idly employed with his cigar, he sipped his coffee. In time aware that she had turned her attention elsewhere, he looked up. At first he was conscious of an effect of disappointment. She was nobody that he knew, even by reputation. She was simply a young girl, barely out of her teens, if as old as that phrase would signify. He wondered what she had found in him, to make her think him worth so long a study, and looked again, more keenly curious. With this second glance, appreciation stirred the artistic side of his nature, that was already grown impatient of his fretted mood. The slender and girlish figure, posed with such absolute lack of intrusion against a screen of rose and gilt, moved him to critical admiration. The tinted glow of shaded candles caught glistening 
on the spun gold of her fair hair, and enhanced the fine pallor of her young shoulders. He saw promise, and something more than promise in her face, its oval something dimmed by warm shadows that unavailingly sought to blend youth and beauty alike into the dull, rich background. In the sheer youth of her, he realized, more than aught else, lay her chiefest charm. She could be little more than a child, indeed, if he were to judge her by the purity of her shadowed eyes, and the absence of emotion in the calm and direct look which presently she turned upon him, who sat wondering at the level, pencilled darkness of her brows. At length aware that she had surprised his interest, Kirkwood glanced aside, coolly deliberate, lest she should detect in his attitude anything more than impersonal approval. A slow colour burned his cheeks. In his temples there rose a curious pulsing. After a while she drew his gaze again, imperiously, herself all unaware of the havoc she was wreaking on his temperament. He could have fancied her distraught, cloaking an unhappy heart with placid brow and gracious demeanour, but such a conception matched strangely her glowing youth and spirit. What had she to do with care? What concern had black care, whose gaunt shape in sable shrouds had lurked at his shoulder all the evening, despite his rigid preoccupation, with a being as charmingly flushed with budding womanhood as this girl? Eighteen, he hazarded. Eighteen, or possibly nineteen, dining at the Pless in a ravishing dinner-gown, and unhappy? Oh, hardly. Not she. Yet the impression haunted him, and ere long he was fain to seek confirmation or denial of it in the manner of her escort. The latter sat with back to Kirkwood, cutting a figure as negative as his snug evening clothes. One could surmise little from a fleshy neck, a round glazed bald spot, a fringe of grizzled hair, and two bright red ears. Calendar? Somehow the fellow did suggest Kirkwood's caller of the afternoon. The young man could not have said precisely how, for he was unfamiliar with the aspect of that gentleman's back. Nonetheless, the suggestion persisted. By now, a few of the guests, theatre-bound for the most part, were leaving. Here and there a table stood vacant that had been filled, cloth tarnished, chairs disarranged, in another moment to be transformed into its pristine brilliance under the deft attentions of the servitors. Down an aisle, past the table at which the girl was sitting, came two, making toward the lobby. The man, a slight and meagre young personality, in the lead. Their party had attracted Kirkwood's notice as they entered. Why, he did not remember, but it was in his mind that then they had been three. Instinctively he looked at the table they had left. It appeared that the third member had chosen to dally a few moments over his tobacco and a liqueur brandy. Kirkwood could see him plainly, lounging in his chair and fumbling the stem of a glass, a heavy man of sombre habit, his black and sullen brows lowering and thoughtful above a face boldly handsome. The woman of the trio was worthy of closer attention. Some paces in the wake of her lacklustre esquire, she was making a leisurely progress, trailing the skirts of a gown magnificent beyond dispute, half concealed though it was by the opera cloak whose soft folds draped her shoulders. Slowly, 
carrying her head high, she approached, insolent eyes reviewing the room from beneath their heavy lids, a metallic and mature type of dark beauty, supremely self-confident and self-possessed. Men turned involuntarily to look after her, not altogether in undiluted admiration. In the act of passing behind the putative calendar, she paused momentarily, bending as if to gather up her train. Presumably the action disturbed her balance, she swayed a little, and in the effort to recover, rested the tips of her gloved fingers upon the edge of the table. Simultaneously, Kirkwood could have sworn, a single word left her lips, a word evidently pitched for the ear of the hypothetical calendar alone. Then she swept on, imperturbable, assured. To the perplexed observer, it was indubitably evident that some communication had passed from the woman to the man. Kirkwood saw the fat shoulders of the girl's companion stiffen suddenly as the woman's hand rested at his elbow. As she moved away, a little rippling shiver was plainly visible in the muscles of his back, and beneath his coat, mute token of relaxing tension. An instant later one plump and mottled hand was carelessly placed where the woman's had been, and was at once removed with fingers closed. To the girl, watching her face covertly, Kirkwood turned for clue to the incident. He made no doubt that she had observed the passage, proof of that one found in her sudden startling pallor of indignation, and in her eyes, briefly alight with some inscrutable emotion, though quickly veiled by lowered lashes. Slowly enough she regained colour and composure, while her vis-à-vis -vis sat motionless, head inclined as if in thought. Abruptly the man turned in his chair to summon a waiter, and exposed his profile. Kirkwood was in no wise amazed to recognise Calendar, a badly frightened Calendar now, however, and hardly to be identified with the sleek, glib fellow who had interviewed Kirkwood in the afternoon. His flabby cheeks were ashen and trembling, and upon the back of his chair the fat white fingers were drumming incessantly, an inaudible tattoo of shattered nerves. "'Scared silly,' commented Kirkwood. "'Why?' Having spoken to his waiter, Callender for some seconds raked the room with quick glances, as if seeking an acquaintance. Presumably disappointed, he swung back to face the girl, bending forward to reach her ears with accents low-pitched and confidential. She, on her part, fell at once attentive, grave, and responsive. Perhaps a dozen sentences passed between them. At the outset her brows contracted, and she shook her head in gentle dissent, whereupon Callender's manner became more imperative. Gradually, unwillingly, she seemed to yield consent. Once she caught her breath sharply, and infected by her companion's agitation sat back, colour fading again in the round young cheeks. Kirkwood's waiter put in an inopportune appearance with the bill. The young man paid it. When he looked up again, Callender had swung squarely about in his chair. His eye encountered Kirkwood's. He nodded pleasantly. Temporarily confused, Kirkwood returned the nod. In a twinkling, he had repented. Callender had left his chair and was wending his way through the tables towards Kirkwood's. Reaching it, he paused, offering the hand of genial fellowship. Kirkwood accepted it half-heartedly. What else was he to do? Remarking at the same time that Callender had recovered much of his composure, 
There was now a normal colouring in the heavily jowled countenance, with less glint of fear in the quick dark eyes, and Callender's hand, even if moist and cold, no longer trembled. Furthermore, it was immediately demonstrated that his impudence had not deserted him. "'Why, Kirkwood, my dear fellow!' he crowed, not so loudly as to attract attention, but in a tone assumed to divert suspicion should he be overheard. "'This is great luck, you know, to find you here.' "'Is it?' returned Kirkwood coolly. He disengaged his fingers. The pink, plump face was contorted in a furtive grimace of depreciation. Without waiting for permission, Callender dropped into the vacant chair. "'My dear sir,' proceeded unabashed, "'I throw myself upon your mercy.' the devil you do. I must. I'm in the deuce of a hole, and there's no one I know here besides yourself. I—' Kirkwood saw fit to lead him on, partly because out of the corner of his eye he was aware of the girl's unconcealed surprise. "'Go on, please, Mr. Callender. You throw yourself on a total stranger's mercy, because you're in the deuce of a hole, and—' "'It's this way.' I'm called away on urgent business, imperative business. I must go at once. My daughter is with me. My daughter! Think of my embarrassment. I cannot leave her here alone, nor can I permit her to go home unprotected. Callender paused in anxiety. That's easily remedied, then, suggested Kirkwood. How? Put her in a cab at the door. I— No. The devil! I couldn't think of it. You won't understand. I do not understand amended the younger man, politely. Callender compressed his lips nervously. It was plain that the man was quivering with impatience and half mad with excitement. He held quiet only long enough to regain his self-control and take counsel with his prudence. "'It is impossible, Mr. Kirkwood. I must ask you to be generous and believe me.' "'Very well. For the sake of argument, I do believe you, Mr. Callender.' "'Hell!' exploded the elder man in an undertone. Then, swiftly stammering in his haste, "'I can't let Dorothy accompany me to the door,' he declared. "'She—' "'I throw myself upon your mercy.' "'What? Again?' "'The truth. The truth is, if you will have it, that I am in danger of arrest the moment I leave here. If my daughter is with me, she will have to endure the shame and humiliation.' "'Then why place her in such a position?' Kirkwood demanded sharply. Callender's eyes burned, incandescent with resentment. Offended, he offered to rise and go, but changed his mind and sat tight in hope. "'I beg of you, sir.' "'One moment, Mr. Callender.' Abruptly, Kirkwood's weathercock humour shifted, amusement yielding to intrigued interest. After all, why not oblige the fellow? What did anything matter now? What harm could visit him if he yielded to this corpulent adventurer's insistence?' Both from experience and observation he knew this for a world plentifully peopled by soldiers of fortune, contrivers of snares and pitfalls for the feet of the unwary. On the other hand, it is axiomatic that a penniless man is perfectly safe anywhere. Besides, there was the girl to be considered. Kirkwood considered her forthwith. In the process thereof, his eyes sought her, perturbed. Their glances clashed. She looked away hastily, crimson to the temples. Instantly the conflict between curiosity and caution, inclination and distrust, was at an end. With sudden compliance, 
The young man rose. "'I shall be most happy to be of service to your daughter, Mr. Callender,' he said, placing the emphasis with becoming gravity. And then, the fat adventurer leading the way, Kirkwood strode across the room, wondering somewhat at himself if the whole truth is to be disclosed. End of chapter 2 Recording by Adam Doughty, Kerry Kerry, New Zealand